Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, no relationship to Kim Jong-un. I'm a left-wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. What a great show we have today. First, we're going to talk to David Enrich, who's, of course, a business investigator at The New York Times, who's the author of the new book, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. He's going to talk to us all about his new book. Then we're going to talk to G. Elliot Morris, who's a data journalist and U.S. correspondent at The Economist and author of Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them, all about the weird discussion of polls that's happening around the midterms. But first, let's have some fun. Molly Jonfest. We talk a lot about Trump being the uh, head of the Republican Party, but I have a new theory that maybe Tucker Carlson is actually the head of the Republican Party. Oh. And I will back this up, but Tucker Carlson says that on July 26th, which you'll remember is like two months ago, I'm saying that for myself as much as for anyone else, because I looked at this and I was like, July, it's not July anymore. No, no. Martha's Vineyard is begging for more diversity. Why not send migrants there in huge numbers? Since he's the head of the Republican Party, that is exactly what Mr. Ron DeSantis did last night, sending 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard on a plane in the hopes of winning the Republican presidential primary discuss. Oh, first of all, I sort of like your theory. I think you can sort of split it. I think you could say that Tucker Carlson is maybe the the head of the Republican Party for policy. Yes. And Trump is the head of the Republican Party for sort of the the heartbeat of the party. <laughs> right. For criming. For criming, right. And and it sort of makes sense because DeSantis sort of wants to, he's sort of the fusion candidate here. <laughs> right. It's true. And, you know, he likes to present as smarter than Trump and a saner alternative to Trump, which he's not, but I'm talking about how he likes to present it. So, yeah, I kind of like your theory if we split it that way. I remember we talked about you know, the fact that they were talking about busing the immigrants to northern cities and stuff like that. And we sort of joked about it. We were like, oh, the immigrants will probably be happy about it, and which is probably true. But it's also not funny. I mean, I'm hard-pressed. I, I'm not a lawyer, but this feels like kidnapping to me I don't, or, you know, and trafficking. And there are children involved in this. Right. And they're not feeding them. I mean- No, it's, it's just gross is what it is. And we've now got, it feels like we've got DeSantis in Florida and Abbott in Texas sort of competing to see who can be the biggest asshole. And, and it sort of feels like that's part of what this is about, is that DeSantis did this as sort of a, you know, feeding off of Greg Abbott. 
Abbott and wanting to make it clear that he's got the smallest dick in town. <laughs> it's gross on every level except for the response by the people in Martha's Vineyard after these people who, by the way, were, as far as I can tell, are asylum seekers. Yeah, it's actually not illegal to seek asylum. No, not at all. Like, they were doing what conservatives say they want done, which is you follow the rules. So they were following the rules, and, you know, the conservative retort to that is that the rules suck, and Joe Biden and blah, 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 whatever. But regardless, they were following the rules. And their reward for that was getting thrown on a plane in Texas that then stopped in Florida and then stopped in South Carolina and then ended up in Martha's Vineyard. And again, sounds like kidnapping to me. They were not told where they were going. I don't even think they knew where they were when they landed. No, they were told they were going to Boston. State Senator Julian Sear said the planes originated in San Antonio, Texas and appeared to be part of a larger campaign to divert Morgans from border states. He said, just like the reverse freedom ride, in the 1960s. This right. endeavor is a cruel ruse that is manipulating families who are seeking a better life. No one should capitalize on the difficult circumstances that these families are in and contorting that for the purpose of a gotcha moment. I mean, it is like, you know, what I think is so moving about this is people were served breakfast this morning by the parish and served lunch by the school system. We are a community that helps one another and you can see it here. You know, I mean, the thing that got me so upset today when I was reading it, I actually read it last night, was that my great-grandparents came to this country. Like, that's how it works. Right. And these are our people, just like the rest of us. I mean, they didn't eat all day. They got there. They were told they were going to have, you know, they came, and their people are taking care of them. And I feel like it's just such a good example of, like, you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing. I'm sorry. I'm welling up. No, you're absolutely right. And- uh that's what I was going to talk about before I got, when I started to say, this is so gross, except for, and then I just got sidetracked by the how gross part it is. But I was going to say, except for the response of the people in Martha's Vineyard, who just amazing and fantastic. And just what a stark contrast to the DeSantis's of the world. And look, I have no idea what the party affiliation is of these people in Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard tends to be liberal, which is why DeSantis sent them there. Right. I just don't want to assume and I don't want to say, look at these Democrats. I do think it's safe to assume that the people helping the immigrants are not part of the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Right. <laughs> no, I think that's fair. No, and it really is a stark contrast and sort of like if you want, the, there may not be a better example of the differences of, of the sort of two Americas, the Trump DeSantis. Santis, Abbott, America, and and the America of the actual people who are caring and empathetic and don't, you know, don't hate people because of their skin color or because of how they arrived in this country. It's a beautiful example of that, I think, and one that I don't think it would be bad for the Democrats to use between now and November and between now and 2024 and between now and eternity, because that's how long I feel like the Trump wing of the Republican Party is going to be in control of that party. Yeah. Well, we don't know, because it's possible that this Trump party, that there's a civil war in the Republican Party. And, you know, if Trump keeps losing, eventually Republican donors won't want to fund it anymore. And that's, I think, what needs to happen in order to get normal democracy back. Uh, that's my hope anyway. Yeah, no, that's my hope, too. I just worry that it's not. Um, I did see I saw a funny joke. I wish I could remember who said it, but it was uh, basically that uh, these 
uh, migrants were more welcome in Martha's Vineyard than Alan Dershowitz. Yes, well, and also <laughs> nicer and they didn't do any crimes. So yes, <laughs> well, there is that, yes. <laughs> but I think it's important. We're, so we're going from this unforced error of Ron DeSantis highlighting the people of Martha's Vineyard's humanity and ability to take care of others to another incredible unforced error from uh, one senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Beauregard. No, his middle name is not Beauregard, but it should be. <laughs> Lindsey Beauregard Grant. Graham. It should be Beauregard. It's it should true. be Grant, too. Lindsey Graham, South Carolina. I talked to a friend of mine who's a straight news reporter, and I said, what the fuck is Lindsey Graham thinking? They don't control the Senate. They don't control the House. He's putting up this bill. There's no chance of them winning. And abortion is polling very badly for Republicans. And you have people like Blake Masters scrubbing it from their website. What the fuck is he thinking? And my friend said he has all these anti-choice supporters who want more from him. And he's terrified of a primary challenge. And again, that is the only way this makes sense. Because otherwise, otherwise, he's just working for Biden. That sounds like good analysis. It also, I think you can expand it and just say that Lindsey Graham seems to spend his political life terrified. Yes. You know, he's terrified of Trump. He's terrified of voters not thinking he's MAGA enough. So between that and sort of having, you know, no soul to speak of, he just goes with whatever he thinks is right at the moment. But as you pointed out, the the interesting thing is that, or the important thing here is that he's wrong. And we've seen this because the Republicans are pissed at him. Right. And won't support it. They're, of course, for the most part, with, with some rare exceptions who are actually like, hey, we said we wanted abortion to go back to the states. So that's where it should be. And at least those few people are honest. What you have from a bunch of other Republicans is they're not mad about the abortion ban. That's what they want. They're mad about the timing. Right, 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 right. No, and and you and you have Mike Pence still saying that they want to uh, do a federal abortion ban if ever they can win the presidency back. Right. I just since we're talking about Lindsey Beauregard Graham, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser have a new book out called The Divider. It had a lot of pretty interesting stuff in it. One of the one of my favorite parts of it is that Lindsey Graham called Donald Trump a lying motherfucker, but also a lot of fun to hang out with. <laughs> That's what you want in a president. I mean, he's a fun guy, but also he's a lying motherfucker. It's a funny quote and whatever, but it also gets to sort of like every Republican knows this. They all know he's a lying motherfucker. Yeah. And just as they all know that... You know, Ted Cruz knows the election wasn't stolen. Marco Rubio knows the election wasn't. They all know. Except Louis Gohmert. Louis Gohmert does not know. He, but doesn't, he doesn't know. know. He is not sure I where mean, he is. Louis Gohmert doesn't know is an evergreen headline. <laughs> so the Louis Gohmerts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, they're in a separate class. But I'm talking about the, the Kevin McCarthy's and the Ted Cruz's and whatever. They all know. And they choose to go along with this. And they choose to sort of, you know, shrug their shoulders and be like, ah, what are you going to do? <laughs> it's just crimes. Yeah. They're all enablers of these, even if they're not themselves complicit in all of the crimes, they're enablers of the crimes. And again, that's why we say, you know, that, that Donald Trump is the heartbeat of the Republican Party, because all of these people are too cowardly to do anything about it. And so they they just shrug their shoulders and say, well, he's a really fun guy. He, he Yeah, he lies all the time and he commits crimes, but really fun guy. They're fun crimes. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. He's a fun-loving criminal. Festive. You know, look, he loves to golf. My, my favorite 90s band. Yes. <laughs> he, he loves to golf. He gets married a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that uh, he said in the book was he said things uh, that were very disparaging about Nancy Pelosi's looks and other women's looks. Which, again, leads me to this idea that these people really are, like, I mean, you, you have an implanted wig. Like, <laughs> you're really going to go down this road of, like, going after people for their looks? Are we talking about Trump or, or Graham here? I was thinking of Trump. And also, you do see that uh, Nancy Pelosi knows she has a winning issue on her hands, right? She's She mocked Republicans for their stances on abortion, saying there are those in the party who think life begins at the candlelight dinner the night before. <laughs> We're in yet another situation where the base, to keep the base, the party has to move so far to the right that they alienate the people that they right. need to vote for them. And it's working, and we're seeing it because the Republicans are getting annoyed. And I saw Marco Rubio, you know, he was asked about a, a complete abortion ban, and he was like, the Democrats are the extreme ones on abortion. Talk about them. Talk about how they want abortions to be up until the moment of birth, <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. And, it, and it's like, they are so defensive on this issue. Because they need to be, because they know they're screwed. You, no, they absolutely need to be, because they are not... You know, regardless of how you even feel about abortion, if you're anti-choice or pro-choice, they are out of step with the country on this one. So just as a as a pure naked political thing, they are on the defensive right now in a really, really bad way. And they're running scared. I don't like saying that what the court did is good for Democrats. I just, I hate that sort of... No, it's bad for everyone. And you don't exactly. keep women having to go home to wait to see if their baby is going to die and when they're going to die so they can have it. You know, I mean, this this is a completely crazy situation and it's terrible and people don't like it. And more importantly, I do want to say, I think that Marco Rubio is the world's most, un most miserable senator. <laughs> Like, he's so fucking miserable. Like, you've never seen anyone who is more just like, like, I mean, honestly, who cares because he sucks. But like, I mean, you just every time they talk to him, every time he tweets, you know, you could just see like this is a person for whom Trump won, crushed him and now continues to ruin his life. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, you know, Ted Cruz has just who also knows that everything he that comes out of his own mouth is absolute garbage, but right. he seems to have embraced that. Yeah. And that's, you know, but look, he comes from the podcast world and that's what we right. do. Exactly. So you can't <laughs> blame him for that. But, uh, but I, no, I do agree with you with Rubio because he does seem deep down. He still knows that everything he's saying is, is not true and that everything he's doing is bad. And, and I probably deep down he's not that person, which, again, I don't feel sorry for him because he's chosen right, to— he did this to himself. He's chosen to act like that person, and, that, and that's all that matters. So I'm not defending him or excusing him in the right. least. If you had to choose between like a Rubio and a Cruz, the one who is lifting his head up from the sink and staring in the mirror going, who am I? Yeah. Is yeah, Rubio. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, Cruz. No question. Cruz is like, you're a good looking bastard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cruz, Cruz just looks in the mirror and starts doing like a Joker laugh or something. Right. But. Cruz is like hot Wolverine. Right. <laughs> whereas uh, Marco's like, oh my God. I, yeah. You know, how did do, I do, do this? Do you really want to be on record calling him hot Wolverine? <laughs> I'm not calling him hot 
Wolverine. Uh, He's calling himself uh, Hot Wolverine. You know, I mean, this okay. is a clear, an important clarification. Speaking <laughs> of, don't quote me out of context. Thank you. By the way, I don't know if that Wolverine was like a comics reference or the animal reference. It's a comic <laughs> with the hair, the weird. He's got okay, that crazy. Then you can just say, I mean, mutton chops. You can just say Wolverine. You don't have to say Hot Wolverine. Well, I, just- he says to himself that he's. Hot. You know what? Forget it. We should go on about. This. Yeah, we should continue. <laughs> Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off of my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience. And it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries. And it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash the new abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the new abnormal. David Enrick is a business investigator at the New York Times, as well as the author of the new book, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. Welcome to the new abnormal, David. Thanks for having me. So talk to me about how you decided to even write this book, because you kind of come from finance, right? Yeah, I've been writing about business and finance for 20 years, which is terrifying. No, don't say 20 years, because that makes us all seem old, okay? Well, I I feel old. (laughs) You're one year younger than Jesse and I, so you're not allowed to feel old. I'm sorry. I feel young as can be. Exactly, young. So I've been uh, covering this stuff for a long time, or a medium amount of time, depending on your perspective. Basically, for every big business scandal that I've written about over the years, there's been one or more uh, giant corporate law firms lurking in the background. And I've always been fascinated by the roles that they play in helping companies 
kind of shield themselves from the fallout from these scandals and also the way that the, the these law firms kind of massage the media including at times me to really plant stories and spin things behind the scenes and it, it occurred to me at one point that you know i had never written an investigation about a big law firm i'd written lots of stories about the the clients the law firms represented but i ne- I had never really dug into how these law firms actually operate or the power that they wield and i was kind of itching to do that and so I'd been looking for a vehicle, like basically a, a big law firm to focus on that would have an interesting narrative arc for a book treatment. And then in 2020, I began to realize that one law firm, Jones Day, was deeply enmeshed with Trump world. And those were, so it was kind of a nexus of those two interests of mine. Off I went. It's just super interesting. I always want to know when people write nonfiction books like this, what changed from your sort of you knew stuff superficially and then you got into it? What did you find psychologically in your understanding of the law firm or of just lawyers in general? Or I always feel like when you write a book, you have a sort of sea change. So I'm curious what sort of sea changes you had from getting all this information. I mean, there were a bunch. I grew up in a family. My dad was a lawyer and it kind of from a very early age instilled in me this view of the law and the legal practice as this majestic thing with for which he had a lot of reverence. And that had kind of, I'd grown jaded as reporters tend to become as they cover this stuff. But I still really didn't have any clear conception of what actually went on inside these law firms. I kind of had an inkling that there was some dirty tactics that were used, some aggressive tactics that were used. But I, I, did, I really had lacked a clear insight into how the firms operated and kind of how the legal industry had gone from becoming something that was this reverential profession that lawyers viewed themselves as officers of the court into this enormous and multi-billion dollar industry that was, I thought, focusing on money above all else. So I, I learned a lot about just the inner workings of these firms and was really surprised in part to see how not only are they often really aggressive working on behalf of clients and it's sometimes pushing the envelope in ways that struck me as really kind of inappropriate, but also they act that way with their employees too at times. And I came across a number of instances, and this is just focused on John's day, but I'm sure that there are many other similar instances at other big law firms where they were deploying the same kind of smash mouth hardball tactics that usually were reserved when they were going up against plaintiffs. They were doing that with their employees too. And people who had labor disputes with the firm, people who were uncomfortable with some of the things the firm was doing in different parts of the world. And the lawyers at Jones Day, the top, the senior partners would come down like a ton of bricks on these lawyers in a way that I talked to a bunch of them and they felt steamrolled. And it was kind of an interesting parallel, I thought, with the way that many people that go up against law firms like Jones Day end up feeling afterwards. So what you're saying is the Pelican brief is real. <laughs> no, a- every Don Grissom treatment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not cutting that out. <laughs> Thanks. John, John Grisham is definitely a, uh, has a pretty good sense of how things work. And there's, and frankly, I was inspired by. Wait, well, really? Tell me, can, yeah. can say more. I mean, not, I mean, not really. It's right. not like there are murders behind the scenes and people doing things like that. Right. It wasn't that long ago that the legal profession would have, in general, many lawyers in it would have really had a, fierce, visceral, negative reaction to me or anyone else referring to the, the legal industry. They didn't right. regard themselves as being part of an industry. And that started to change in a very abrupt manner in 40 or 50 years ago. And 
which led to these law firms that grew bigger and bigger and more and more cutthroat in their pursuit of profits. And it's not like they're running, it's, it's not truly out of a John Grisham book or movie, and there aren't people running around killing each other. But there are the notion that lawyers should be public spirited and doing everything kind of as officers of the court, I think has, in, a, in many senses, vanished. And it, you see this with the way that they treat witnesses sometimes, uh, opposing parties that they're going up against, federal judges sometimes, and their own employees a lot of the time, I think. And it's really, it, was a really, it was really sobering for me to, to get such a, an up-close and personal view of what was happening. Yeah, I mean, it's just so interesting. How did these people get involved in Trump world? Because I feel like one of the things I saw was that I was sort of surprised that people I considered to think of themselves as an enormous snobs kind of did end up in Trump world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jonesy's history, just very briefly, is that it was founded in Cleveland in the, 18, in the 1890s. And for you know most of its existence, it was a law firm representing big companies, including many in the Midwest, but really all over the country. And it began, I think, changing as it took on more and more aggressive clients. So one of their biggest clients over the years had been RJR, the tobacco company. And Jones Day deployed these extraordinarily aggressive tactics to protect the client and to fend off lawsuits from people who had been harmed by cigarettes. And in some cases, that meant really the, the, the firm and its lawyers became kind of official industry spokesmen and were helping spread the same disinformation about the dangers of nicotine and tobacco that the tobacco industry itself was doing. And so this is, so Jonesy was a big corporate law firm and about 10 years ago or so, it started developing a bit more of a taste for politics. And the people at the top of the firm were by and large, pretty far right conservatives. And so in 2014, they decided they would actually start a new practice within the firm that was focused on helping Republicans win elections. That was not something they'd previously been doing. And so they hired this team of hotshot Republican lawyers, uh, including Don McGahn. And one of the first clients that Don McGahn brought on when he arrived at Jones Day in early 2015 was the Trump presidential campaign, which at the time no one was taking seriously. And But McGahn, I think, saw Trump, who really was not burdened with strong views on the major issues of the day. I, I think McGahn I think McGahn saw Trump as a bit of an empty vessel that if he could gain traction in the Republican primaries, that McGahn could use him as a vehicle to achieve some of his long sought ambitions. Interesting. And that he was not the only person to see Trump that way. A lot of smart people hoped that they could sort of use him as a figurehead for their own agenda. Yeah, that, that's right. It was a, a kind of a daring bet because for you know more than a year, it looked like Trump was not going to really gain traction. I mean, he was the front runner, but then it wasn't until he started winning a bunch of primaries that people began really taking him seriously. And at that point, McGahn and Jones Day overall kind of doubled down on him and they started using the law firm and the law firm's headquarters and the law firm's lawyers to help Trump build up support and credibility among the conservative establishment. It was at Jones Day's offices that Don McGahn and Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society cooked up the idea of Trump publicly announcing a list of potential Supreme Court judges that he would choose from. And it basically went like that. And with uh, McGahn and Jones Day vetting those potential nominees, and then 
Trump wins, of course, and McGahn gets the nod to be White House counsel, and he brings with him into the White House and into the Trump administration dozens of his colleagues from Jones Day who are who you know not only are in the White House but they're at the top of the Justice Department, they're at the Commerce Department, they're in the Energy Regulatory Agency, the Consumer Products Agency. So, and Jones Day, it's not like it takes over the federal government at all, but it's it had more of its once and future lawyers in positions of great power inside the Trump administration than I think any law firm in any administration has ever had before. Wow. So at some point, McGahn figured out that Trump was too stupid to influence? Well, I think I mean, the first thing that happened is that McGahn started getting very nervous about McGahn's personal legal exposure. <laughs> and that's, right. you know, a pattern that we've seen. <laughs> the bad part of being a lawyer in Trump world. And it's a pattern, right? This is something that was happening for decades before Trump ever started flirting with the White House. And it's happening to this day that lawyers who cast their lot with Donald Trump often find themselves in legal peril themselves, which is the last place a lawyer ever wants to be. And so, but McGahn's response to that concern was kind of interesting, which is that he called up the guy who runs Jones Day, Steve Brogan, and urged him, Brogan, to pitch his services to Trump so that Trump's personal legal problems could be dumped on Jones Day so and McGahn could stay in the White House <laughs> focusing on what he really cared about, which was remaking the federal judiciary and kind of neutering the federal government and its regulatory powers. And Brogan went into the White House, to the Oval Office a couple of times, and actually had met with Trump trying to pitch his services. And Trump ultimately went for John Dowd, who is a bit more in the traditional style of, of a Trump lawyer. But McGahn nonetheless managed to have enough time and energy to focus on picking judges and dismantling what he likes to call the administrative state. That I mean, those are probably two of, if not the two most lasting legacies of the Trump administration. And those are things that are going to be felt for years, maybe decades to come. Yeah, for sure. Um, One of the things George Conway has always told me is that the White House counsel were like the biggest fans of his. Hmm. I'm not I'm not sure I'm supposed to say that. But anyway, when I just realized. He would say that the White House counsel was the biggest fans of whom? When George was writing all those pieces, that the, he had a lot of fans in the White House counsel. Oh, that's so interesting. I that I had not heard Sorry. that. Uh, <laughs> Oops. The, the, well, the, the interesting thing, though, about that, it, that's really telling. Yeah. It's really telling, right? A lot of these guys, and I think including McGann, you know, they, they like the fact that they had what they regard as a pliable president. They, I don't think they, and McGahn famously battled with Trump and had these sh- screaming matches with him. And I, I don't think yeah. personally they got along all that well, but it was an opera. It was, a, it was worth the distastefulness, I think, because they had this really once in a generation opportunity to, in particular, to remake the federal judiciary. And, and McGahn had essentially unfettered authority to be the one person who was coming up with judicial nominees, not just for the Supreme Court, but also for in the appellate courts and district courts. I mean, a quarter of the appellate bench turned over in the Trump administration and was replaced with people who not entirely, but mostly had the unqualified backing of the Federalist Society. And McGahn likes to tell this story about how, you know, he hates it when people come up to him and say, you outsource the job of judge picking to the Federalist Society. And McGahn says, his response to that is, we didn't outsource it, we insourced it. And it, it's true. I mean, every person he had in the White House Counsel's Office was a member of the Federalist Society, and they were extremely efficient and effective and 
strategic about how they were going to execute on this plan. And it worked. That's I'm just I'm staring at my computer in horror thinking about this. I mean, I know it's true, but it's still so grim. The other thing that happened is that a number of uh, lawyers from Jones Day were among those that got picked to be on the federal courts. I mean, Greg Katzis, who is a longtime Jones Day partner and who had been who McGann had brought into the White House Counsel's office, was one of the first people. He, he was put on the D.C. Appeals Court, which is behind the Supreme Court, the most, probably the most powerful judicial body in the United States. There are, and there were a bunch of others as well who got lifetime appointments who'd gone from Jones Day into the Trump administration with McGahn and then get very quickly turned around to his lifetime appointment. So it was a really symbiotic relationship, I think, between the Trump administration, the Jones Day kind of diaspora, and now the federal courts. And as I said, that is going to be with us for a very long time. Yeah. Do they consider that Supreme Court to be their greatest accomplishment? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, those are people who, I mean, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett are people who are all, you know, they, they differ in some regards. And I don't even mean this necessarily as a criticism, right? But they are very uniform in many of their core beliefs. And it's not an accident. It's because Don McGahn, even before he got into the White House, that McGahn and other colleagues at Jones Day and people at the Federalist Society were planning very carefully on exactly how they were going to roll this out. And and McGahn picked uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And he, well, Barrett wasn't nominated to the court until after McGahn had left the White House. But it was Mag- while McGahn was in the White House Counsel's office that Barrett was plucked from academic obscurity and put on an appeals court, which with more or less, I think, the express understanding that should another vacancy open up during the Trump administration, she would be a prime candidate for that. So and the interesting thing about this is that not only do these people have very similar legal philosophies and I think ideologies, but they all hang out together. And there was an amazing anecdote I heard involved the day after Roe v. Wade was overturned in June, Barrett, Justice Barrett came up to New York for a birthday party that was hosted at the home of one of Jones Day's senior most lawyers. And while there, she was hanging out with a bunch of Jones Day partners, including Noel Francisco, who had been the Trump administration's solicitor general, and now runs a Jones Day practice where many of his lawyers have cases before the Supreme Court. And at that very moment, in fact, had a case, an open case before the Supreme Court. The days later, the court with Barrett and the majority would rule in favor of Jones Day's client. And so it's not to say there's any cause and effect there that's improper for them to be seeing each other. But I think it really clearly reflects how intermingled these worlds are through professional, social and kind of ideology links. It's absolutely crazy. It's interesting now that I'm spilling the tea and saying things I'm not supposed to be saying, which is basically all the time, <laughs> that I had a, a friend who was like a very Trumpy insider who told me they were saving Amy for when RBG died. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I think that's, you look at, and McGann has been fairly public about Every time he's spoke, not every time he's spoken, but often when he is speaking publicly and kind of touting his accomplishments in the White House, he, especially if he's speaking to an audience like a Federalist Society group, which he often does, he's a little bit smug, or he strikes me as a little bit smug anyway, as he talks about the strategy with Barrett. And, And of course, they didn't know, nobody knew exactly when Ginsburg or if Ginsburg would die. But I mean, I think the writing had been kind of on the wall. And I, I think it is hard to imagine that inside the White House, and inside probably Don McGann's personal office at Jones Day at that point, there wasn't quite a bit of excitement about the opportunity to elevate someone like Barrett. And it was their plan. 
in their hope and they achieved it. Uh, I remember seeing that text and thinking like just getting this like chill that they had like lined up someone if RBG died. I mean, I just like it just was so craven. I mean, I guess it, Democrats also are capable of that kind of cravenness, but it just struck me as I mean, we know Democrats are ca- capable of that, too, but it just struck me as shocking. Yeah, but but the conservative movement has developed just an extremely effective and kind of ruthlessly efficient way of focusing on the things that matter most to them. And the federal court system is maybe the best example of that. And I think that one of the things that Jones Day, and it's, or at least its top lawyers did and continue to do to a certain extent, and they have in some ways professionalized a lot of those operations that have been taking place just primarily within the confines of the Federalist Society. And Jones Day and a number of its lawyers really, I mean, they brought order to the chaos of the Trump campaign. They brought order to the chaos of the Trump administration. And they brought order to the what could have been the chaotic process of a dysfunctional White House trying to pick judicial nominees. And that power was vested in McGahn. And he was attacked it with almost a kind of single-minded devotion. And look, it continued. This is now all these guys are back in private practice at Jones Day. And they continue to take advantage of it in some ways. And not in an improper way, but it's just kind of a natural way. And they have cases before various federal courts. And they've... Now they're former colleagues on federal courts, and they're all a lot of the those judges and a lot of those cases are focused on the same kind of set of issues. And it's actually not even social issues. They're, it's primarily now the things that are most focused on are cases that attack the power of the federal government to regulate big industries or to protect consumers and things like that. I mean, they played Jones Day played a key role in the big EPA case that was decided back in June, where they curbed the EPA's power to regulate carbon emissions. Jones Day was the one that brought the case that ended up invalidating uh, the Biden administration's moratorium on evictions during the pandemic. It was a very young uh, Jones Day lawyer who was then appointed to the federal bench, who was the one who struck down the Biden administration's mask mandate. And all of these cases have this common thread, which is that they are they represent an interpretation of the law that really, really na- narrows and dilutes the power of the federal government to regulate big business and to intervene in the affairs of private companies. So interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. G. Elliott Morris is a data journalist and U.S. correspondent at The Economist and author of Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. Welcome to the new abnormal, Elliot. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about polls because we are in this 50-something days to the midterm and You know, I don't know about, I mean, I know you don't have a partisan bent, but for me, I saw a poll that had Ron Anon, otherwise known as Ron Johnson, up by eight points this month from last month. And I nearly, I mean, I know that he has this crazy come from behind thing that he did last time too, but just explain to me, what are we, and Amy Walters said this similar thing, what are we getting wrong in the pundit world that we don't understand about polling? Oh, wow. Well, we could go on for hours. But <laughs> in the narrow context in 15 minutes. of your question. Uh, yeah, I think we can take the Ron Johnson polling as an example here. So when you have a pollster that comes out a month ago and says he's up, you know, X percent or whatever. And then this month, it's like an eight percentage point 
change from last month. The statistics here, and I'm going to try not to make all the listeners' eyes glaze over, (laughs) say that that eight percentage point difference might not be real. That's sort of the most basic way to explain it. It does not reflect eight percentage point of the population actually changing their minds about the election. Part of that eight percentage point change could be due to the pollster sampling more partisan groups over that time period. So say they get more Republicans now than they got last time around, that would make the poll look like it had an eight percentage point change in vote intention. But it might just be that they're asking more Republicans questions now. This is so that could be a source of hope for some Democrats, but the opposite could be true. It could be that last time around they were asking too many Democrats how they were going to vote in their poll. And this is the like big strategic weakness of the polls right now. We just really don't know how many Democrats and Republicans there are in Wisconsin. You can get a pretty good guess by making sure you have enough, you know, high socioeconomic status whites and low socioeconomic status whites and, you know, other demographic groups, education groups and incomes, right? But at the end of the day, if you're talking to too many Democratic or Republican people within the sort of right using the coveted non-college white voter as the example, then the poll can't adjust for that. And so, I mean, that's that's the big thing in the book. That's the big thing, I think, this election cycle. We don't know if attitudes are Republican plus eight or if sampling has caused a phantom Republican plus eight. And really, like, statisticians don't have an answer for this. So it's up to pollsters, up to reporters to just, you kind of have to throw your hands up a little and say, well, this is what it looks like. We can't trust the sampling. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you can't trust the sampling to provide you a 100% accurate portrait, or you cannot trust the sampling to deliver the percentage of Republicans in the electorate today that there will be in November. And that could be because you get too many Republicans now and then, like people changing their minds, or those Republicans are just not answering the phones, which is pretty much what happened in 2020. If that's happening this year again, then the polls are going to be biased in pretty much the same exact way. But I guess, you know, that is a big if. We do not know. So, I mean, basically, these are all still home phones or are they cell phones? Talk to me about, like, the methodology here. Oh, yeah. So the mechanics of a modern poll are probably not, well, it's not your daddy's poll, right? Your granddaddy's poll. It's online polls. So people go to, say, yougov.com, and they put their email address and their demographic information into the platform. And then YouGov will select them and give them a poll. That's a pretty complex online poll. Or you could have a mix of live interviewed, you know, calls to a cell phone and a landline, you know, blended together. The pollsters do the math to figure out how many in each bucket they need. Uh, You can also do a poll over SMS, text. So you'd send people links to fill out a poll online. There's a number of of other methods too. The pollsters are now doing polls over mail again, which, you know, they sort of abandoned because it wasn't representative, but recent innovations have made it representative again. And so that is a sort of source for hope, fixing these sampling issues. But yeah, so this is pretty complex, right? You have all these different streams of information. You don't know if you're getting accurate portraits of Americans based on their partisan identity, even if you have an accurate demographic portrait of them. You know, there's just this extra layer of guesswork that people have to do when they're consuming polls, or, you know, hopefully reporters do the guesswork for them and report on it accurately. But you know, that doesn't always, that doesn't always happen. Is it that journalists and pundits are putting too much emphasis on these numbers and not taking them as a sort of trend? The sort of pushback I got from the idea of 
changing the way we poll was that it's actually the way the polls are interpreted that's wrong. Is that right or now? No, that's not right. Okay. It's a mix of two. So, and, and this, this is the introduction to my book, basically saying, look, there's this problem in the media where people overinterpret polls. They expect too much accuracy from them. And right. so when they're wrong by a percentage point or two, just by virtue of them not understanding the uncertainty and you know the sampling error or non-sampling error or whatever, people are going to overreact to those misses, and they shouldn't. But the second issue is that you know that's kind of letting the pollsters off the hook. They were right. at the end of the day wrong about the percentage of Trump voters in the electorate in 2020 and in 2016, and they missed some key races in governor and senate races in 2018. Oh yeah. And 2020. Right. Yeah. And maybe this year. And in 2021, you had plenty of biased polls in the New Jersey governor's race also. God, that New Jersey governor's race. I mean, that was completely crazy. I mean, he barely won and the polling was way up. So, I mean, do you think that ultimately what's happening is I have read about this before, this sort of MAGA phenomenon of not wanting to tell people how you're going to vote? Well, pollsters don't find evidence of people lying to them about who they're going to vote for. Now, I'm going to caveat that finding with the fact that they're not really able to talk to the people who would be lying about them taking a poll because the way they talk to them is to take a poll. So, um, you know, you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. Maybe there is some smaller faction of liars out there. But the bigger issue is just that there's differences in the likelihood of a Republican picking up a phone than a Democrat, at least, you know, in the recent history of polling. That's not a guarantee of what's going to happen in the future. Honestly, that's a much easier problem to solve than people lying to you. It's not an easy problem to solve, but it is a method, you know, there are methodological solutions to that, where there's no methodological solution to people lying to you. That's That could be, I think, used as a cop-out, where in this case, you know, there's just deep methodological problems with the polls. You have a lot of money in politics, right? I mean, we saw some of these Senate candidates raising multiple tens of millions of dollars. Why is there no interest in, like, trying different new ways of polling? Well, the campaigns do seem to innovate a little more than the public pollsters. I think that that's because they have a profit incentive to do so. Right. You know, they're not going to make money if they're wrong, whereas a public pollster can kind of just shrug it off and keep going if they're doing something in the broader <laughs> public interest or what have you. <laughs> right. But, you know, there, there's not a huge difference in the methods that these crowds are using. You can't really trust the polling that comes from inside a campaign, though, right? Well, right. And the problem there is that, the you know, the numbers that they're going to release publicly, they're probably using to, like, juice fundraising dollars or, right. you know, find emails for their campaign lists or what, what have you. So, yeah, we can't trust the public numbers that we get from private pollsters, but their private estimates tend to be pretty good. So that's not really helping us, but it is helping us assess the sort of quality of the polling industry uh, writ large. But, you know, they don't have a magic wand either. The Biden campaign polls were only slightly less biased than the public polls in 2020, you know, by admission of the Biden campaign pollsters. And they're doing some fancy stuff too. So, you know, if if you have a group of people who don't want to answer your calls, and let's say that's any group of people, doesn't have to be Republicans, that is inherently going to make your polls more uncertain. And it's a hard problem to solve unless you know exactly, I mean, like to the decimal point, what percentage of the electorate that group is going to represent. 
And we never know that in election polling because we don't know who's going to turn out until election day. It's so interesting. I've seen some reporting on this. I'm not, I, I don't know how how accurate it is, but it does seem like these ballot initiatives do really, really well. And one could even say like from this that liberal ballot initiatives, not even liberal ones, but ones that are, for example, the choice one in Kansas, they tend to outperform liberal candidates. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? I, I think the Kansas example is a bit of an outlier here. Okay. But I mean, you saw that reporting about how Republicans want to change it so ballot initiatives need to get 60% instead of 50% because they're doing so well. Well, right. I think that rep- represents some deep sort of like counter-majoritarian or minoritarian tendencies on the Republican right. Party, which are obviously bad, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in the case of <laughs> the Kansas referendum, I think what's right. happening there is you— you have a lot of people who vote for Republicans because their identities tell them to, because they align with Republicans on tax and spending or you know, racial issues or whatever. And a lot of those people who vote typically vote for Republicans in a state like Kansas, making it look really red, also want to have access to abortion or rather to use the wording of the referendum, don't want the state government to be able to completely ban it. And so that, that outperforming of the ballot initiative Uh, I think is a bit sort of dependent on the context. The larger research here says if you have a ballot initiative polling at 60, 70%, whether it's a Democratic or a Republican, or I'll say liberal or conservative ballot initiative, typically it's going to get around 55. So that the ballot initiatives are almost always overstating support for change and underestimating the status quo regardless of what side it's on. Um, and that, I mean, that is not necessarily a partisan finding. It just so happens that most ballot initiatives move in the liberal direction because making policy tends to be liberal. Still interesting though, right? There's a lot that matters that we don't really pull enough on. We should have polling averages for ballot initiatives, just like we have them for elections. We should have 10 or 20 polls of the canvas abortion referendum instead of two or three. And that would give us a better sort of shape of the contours of public opinion on these topics. And that's what really matters at the end of the day. The book I wrote has a lot of history about how presidents and people in Washington use the polls to both advance their policy agendas, but also to react to what the public wants. And you can't do that if you are obsessed with horse race polling, and then at the end of an election, when they're so-called wrong, obsessed with denigrating them. And, And that's harmful to I mean, sort of democracy writ large. Mm, So interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, uh, it was thrilling. Thanks. Andy Levy. Molly Jongfest. Who is your fuck that guy? My fuck that guy is a couple of people, one of whom (laughs) is a Hall of Fame football player who was much beloved when he played uh, by the name of Brett Favre who also, despite being much beloved, did things like send unsolicited dick pics to women and Mm, other kind of gross things that everyone has just decided we're going to sweep under the table and let him keep doing all his commercials and everything like that because he's a likable guy and he played the game the right way. Yikes. And look, I was a fan of him when he played before all this stuff came out. He was fun to watch. I'm proud to say I was never a fan of any sport. Yes, you are proud (laughs) to say that. Yes, continue. But what's this thing happening down in Mississippi? Mississippi's just having a, a couple weeks between the unforgivable issues with the water in Jackson and and this. And basically what's going on here is that all this money 
that millions and millions of dollars that was supposed to go to, I think, like welfare, basically, uh, poverty-fighting initiatives. Of which there is a lot of poverty in Mississippi. Yes, in Mississippi, yes. Yeah. He found a way, along with the uh, the now former governor of Mississippi, uh, Phil Bryant, they found a way to divert this money to build a volleyball center at the University yeah. of Southern Mississippi, where coincidentally Brett Favre's daughter goes and plays. Shocking. Uh, look, this is all just alleged right now, but of course, because it's 2022, there are texts and there are emails. And yes, they're just allegations right now and nothing's been proven and innocent until proven guilty. But man, these emails and texts are bad. And it's hard to come to any conclusion other than, you know, yes, this is what happened when you see texts from Favre saying things like, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, that is not that is not the kind us. of thing yeah, that, not good. that makes you <laughs> feel confident in someone's innocence. Again, it's something that it, it can be laughed at because it's about a volleyball center, but we're talking about taking millions of dollars from from initiatives to help deal with poverty. Which is a real problem. Which is a real problem for a lot of people and is a, you know, a life or death thing for a lot of people. And diverting it for a fucking volleyball center so that Brett Favre's daughter can have a uh, a nice surrounding to play her game. Yeah, so Brett Favre is my main fuck that guy here, but also Phil Bryant and the, I'm sure, many other people in the Mississippi government that helped let this happen. I'm sure the story will be a story that will not go away for them. Yep. And well-deserved. Would you like to hear who my fuck that guy is? I believe I would. It's rare that we get, I get to like pick a fuck that guy who's like an internet person <laughs> and not like a real person. I always think of myself as an internet person and not like a real person. Right. So <laughs> I appreciate when I can go back into really what is my milieu. I'm sure I mispronounced that. Anyway. No, no, no that was good. Oddly, you didn't. <laughs> it's all <laughs> happening today. <laughs> This is a person called John Cardillo who none of you have ever heard of, but I'm going to explain a little bit about who he is. He's a sort of right-wing pundit. He's sort of the poor man's pizza gate Jack <laughs> Posobiec. Is that fair? Yeah. Why not? He was a cop. He lives in Florida. He has one of these sort of, I mean, Will Somer, who's a wonderful writer at the Daily Beast, describes him as it pugnacious. His Twitter is pugnacious. And he once dubbed Joe Biden's relationship with his son, Hunter Creepy. And he used to host a show for Newsmax. You'll have heard of Newsmax. It's like the lesser Fox News. Fair? Fair. Fox News, but without the even appearance of trying <laughs> to pretend that everything they're saying isn't lies. Uh, so John Cardillo had a second job besides being on Twitter. And that second job was arms dealer. I'm sorry, but there are a lot of people on Twitter who might not be great, but how many of them are dealing arms? Look, we're in a gig economy. <laughs> As someone with 15 jobs, like I appreciate that we're in a gig economy, but, and yet arms dealing has not been offered to me. I mean, I'm not saying I would do it, but like, how does that even happen? I don't know, but I would do it. <laughs> Well, he also is, there's a, he's not only is he, was he an arms dealer, but 
he was an arms dealer who didn't always deliver. <laughs> and he stiffed the Ukrainians out of $200,000 in body armor. What? <laughs> I mean, okay. So he gets a hearty fuck you, but he also gets a sort of puzzled, like, how do you even become an arms dealer? And uh, so he is my fuck that guy. It is amazing because, again, all these people, like Trump famously stiffs his employees, his lawyers right. and people like that. You know, Will Summers' piece on on Cordillo, it's, it's the same thing. He has multiple accusations of he wouldn't pay his own lawyer in a case, his partner in a ad uh, that they took out against Quentin Tarantino says he never paid <laughs> the partner back for Wait, like half the ad. Or what? what? Yeah, I mean, it, it, read Will Summers' piece in The Daily Beast. It's really good uh, people out there. Back in 2015, Cardillo was uh, mad at Quentin Tar Tarantino for saying bad stuff about the police. And Cardillo, uh, at another former ex-NYPD, agreed to split the cost of a tabloid ad. And the partner says that Cardillo stiffed him on his share of the bill and Shocked. successfully sued him for 10 grand. <laughs> so it's just like all these people are exactly the same. They're, it's just a question of degree. For them, like Trump is just on another level for them, which is why they idolize him, because that's what they want. Right. You know, they, he is the ultimate grifter to them. And that's what they aspire to. Exactly. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.